Well, hey folks, Jeff Salzman here and welcome back to The Daily Evolver. Today, I want to take a look at some of the response I got from last week's episode, Judging Kavanaugh, on the you know drama surrounding the now confirmation of our new Supreme Court Justice, Brett Kavanaugh. And I think I did focus pretty much on the political and uh, not so much in the cultural, as many of you pointed out. And so I want to do that today. And I want to share some of what you sent me and respond to it. And, um, and I got you know a few, and I think they're interesting. So um, there were some other things, and I'll put... I'll get to them at the end, but I do want to focus on these cultural aspects around the Me Too movement because they're, the Kavanaugh episode itself represents a significant cultural uh, move forward and evolution, uh, in my view, and I'll explain that. Uh, so, um, yeah, so I'll start with a voicemail that I got from uh, listener Deborah. And let me just say before I play it that I appreciate getting both emails and voicemails from you. You can send them to jeff at dailyevolver.com. Or you can go to my website, dailyevolver.com. And there's a, a, a tab called connect. And there's a little a speak pipe in there that you can leave a message there as well. So this is from Deborah, and she's pointing out that I didn't really talk much about the Me Too and cultural. So uh, here we go. Because of that. The other thing you didn't really talk about, I didn't even use the words Me Too. Um, you know, this is just like a clash of things coming together. But um, just watching, you know, there was one really mention about, you know, the sort of eons of women. Um, <laughs> Who have, and men who have been sexually abused by mostly men, um, especially, and then men in power. And even, I mean, the whole issue of how men in power can often get away with this, but um, quite often, you know, men from, you know, different minorities groups would not. Um, so I feel like there's a whole piece of this you didn't bring up at all that's inflaming this more. Um, and it's not simply, I mean, there's certainly some partisanship going on, but um it's not simply just the Democrats being partisan. There's so many huge factors. And I've been, you know, particularly as a woman and knowing about uh, sexual assault from my, my own experience and people I know that like, like to not speak about that feels like it was really remiss. It may have felt like too much. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I, even just the uh, transmission of that uh, voice message uh, to me is uh, sort of the stuff of what a lot of people are feeling. And in a way, everybody, you know, in, in their own way, at, at, at their own, in their own world space. But uh, yeah, it's really, really powerful and potent. And uh, and I and just for the record, I have done a couple previous podcasts on one called the Me Too Reckoning, which was a wonderful talk with Diane Hamilton, and uh, another one called Are Women Bound to Be Good? And 
and really it's been an amazing uh, cultural ride, uh, rise, consciousness raising, to use a good old 70s term, that uh, if you think about the first Harvey Weinstein article in the New Yorker appeared exactly one year ago, I think it was October 3rd, uh, 2017. So it's been really remarkable. So anyway, I want to move on to another uh, wonderful uh, uh, missive that I received. And and also take just a moment to do a little integral um, positioning here. If we think about the quadrants, which is part of the aqua model, and you don't have to get this, but I just want to point it out for people who do, that in a collective moment or a collective cultural movement, there are, so there's that, that's a sort of a dimension of reality, this we space, this louche of the culture at large. And then, there are our individual experiences of it, our, our own individual growth, the procreant urge within us. And one's the collective, one's the individual. Those are, you know, it's one of the um, axes of the quadrants. And they, um, they are not, one is not reducible to the other. So in a way you want to think about how is it that the collective movement here, the collective experience, the cultural experience, not just a sum of all of the individual experiences. And that's a really an interesting integral koan to me, if you will. So I, I, I just want to point that out and then move to the individual side of the street. And I will do that by reading a, an essay, actually, that I received from a listener and good old friend, Jennifer Peters Johnson. Thank you, Jennifer. And she shared uh, this essay that she wrote about her Me Too reckoning. And uh, it illuminates so much of what we can see happening. And uh, so anyway, I will, I will read it. And I'll just set the scene that, I'm not gonna read the whole thing, but I'll, I'll read a good bit of it. I've set the scene, she is a young girl, probably 18. She's just finished her first year of college and she's back in Boulder for her summer break. And so I'll pick it up there. She writes, I'd felt like a ghost all through break. I'd been away at college most of the time since we'd moved to Boulder a year earlier, and I didn't have any friends there. My mood was flat as a blank sheet of paper. Mom thought I should see the new family doctor. All the liberal Democrats she'd befriended raved about him. I don't remember seeing a nurse or another patient in the office, but that seems improbable now, doesn't it? I told him how I'd been feeling. I knew I was depressed, but I wanted it to be something else, maybe my thyroid or mono. He didn't take my blood pressure or look at my throat. He seemed strangely excited. He told me he knew some people who could help me and that he'd close his office and take me to see them. That seemed weird, but whatever. Mom was sure he was a good doc. She and my grandma and little sister had all been to see him, and I'd take any help I could get. I don't remember which canyon he drove up, probably left-hand. It was unpaved then, and it felt narrow and remote with almost no traffic. I didn't know the roads back then. It could have been the road to Jamestown, but to me, it was the twilight zone 
riding in a strange doctor's VW bug to see more strangers. He was talking shit like he was a boy trying to impress me with how cool he was instead of one of the liberal icons of the Republic of Boulder. He pulled into a dirt driveway up to a small funky cabin with no signs of life. We got out. I looked through the window and saw a wood stove and a small bed with a Hudson Bay blanket on it. After no one answered and he couldn't force the door open, he came towards me. He grabbed me in his arms and tried to kiss me. I pushed him away hard. He tried again, but feebly. I told him I wanted to go home. He looked down and nodded. On the way back down, he seemed crazier. He told me he was attracted to all the women in my family, from my grandmother, who was in her 80s, to my mother and 14-year-old sister. He drove fast and carelessly, but I didn't care. I wanted to get off that mountain so bad. My mother was shocked and furious when I told what had happened. We talked about calling the police, but I was going back to school a few, in a few days. He hadn't raped me. I didn't have a scratch on me. Who would believe me over a local hero? Mom had to live in this town and she loved the new friends who'd referred him. So she wrote him a letter and changed doctors. A few years later, mom said that a new friend had told her that he'd, quote, made a pass at her. That's what we called it back then. And it was just part of what women had to deal with, but not from a married doctor twice your age. I forgot about it for 45 years until the Me Too movement burst open a year ago like a rotten tomato. My first reaction was to think how lucky I was that I'd never been assaulted or expected to put out to get a job. What a horrible thing. It was a couple of days before I remembered the doctor. I also remembered the two times men had exposed themselves to me on the path to my elementary school when I was a girl. One was hiding behind a big tree. The other man called to me in a soft voice from his car asking for directions until I got close enough to see what he had in his lap. I'd never told anyone about them. In fact, I'd completely forgotten. I was mystified. Why hadn't I told an adult about the men on the way to school? Why hadn't mom called the police about the doctor? Then it came back to me. I wasn't hurt. There was no evidence. And it was 1971. And then she goes on and she writes, but this time, time around, after watching Dr. Blasey Ford testify, some dots connected. After I went back to college, I began to eat in a way I never had. I started to buy extra food and hide it. I'd go to a restaurant and eat a full meal, then go to another and order a second dessert. I remember thinking this was how an addict must feel. I was furtive and constantly ashamed. I gained 20 pounds in a few months and felt horrible. I didn't get help from my depression. The rest of that year and the following summer were the loneliest I've ever had. Ah, oh, so, wow. Again, another transmission. Thank you, Jennifer. 
and um, so well, so beautifully written. Well, the, in Jennifer's letter, we can, we can see another integral trajectory of, of development. And that is, I talked about it in the last episode as well. It's this move that we, a lot of us have lived through. I mean, it's really amazing how fast, you know, development is accelerating when you think of, we spent, you know, 50,000 years in the first couple stages. Anyway, so at, at the traditional stage, which is the socially conservative stage, it's where Jennifer and I grew up. It's in the 70s in a way we were all kind of still there. We were just cracking the egg to the next stage. But it's the way of things. You know, men make passes at women. Women learn to deal with it. Their mothers teach them how to deal with it. Uh, it's how it works. Uh, if you get away without the worst of it, you feel lucky. And the calculation is to bring it up is just going to cause more trouble. So there's that. That's just how I grew up in the Steel Valley and many of us did. And then so then that's followed by, and get this, it's, a straight, it's the same, same with me. It's four decades of amnesia. Just forget about it. And, you know, we can correlate this with the modern stage where we really are working in the exteriors. It's, it's more of a stage of action, not contemplation. And we're out in the world, we're doing our thing. And, you know, in my case, I can remember some traumas that I remembered, but I just didn't pay much attention. I didn't think about them. And Jennifer, and as she said, just literally forgot about them. And then all of a sudden, and in this case, the testimony of Christine Blasey Ford and recognition, you know, it had a transmission of its own for people with ears to hear. That's not everybody. But for many of us, it was a new emergence of the green self. And, you know, it's not like we haven't been there, but, you know, these things continue to unfold. And, and the, the green self is, is called this, you know, we think of it as the sensitive self. This is where this uh, great interest in our own interiority and the interiority of other people in the, in the therapeutic age comes online. And this sudden emergence of sensitivity can be quite overwhelming. You know, it can be really, really quite powerful. And a lot of people are experiencing that in various ways. And again, to just bring a, you know, a little bit of an integral contemplation to this, it, it makes me think of a contemplation or how I ponder from time to time this fact that a disc of uranium, you know, that looks like a hockey puck, can contain the energy that can level a city or power it. You know, it's like, where is that energy in that little disc of um, metal? And so this is an exterior expression of what's laying around in our interiors as well. When we mine our interiors, we can find all sorts of unwanted material, <laughs> as Trumpo used to say in, in, uh, in Europa, but these traumas laying around. And when we run into them, 
and and we get interested in running into them at, at, at this stage, this sensitive stage, and they can really blow us away. And um, and, and and really, what we want to do is we want to, you know, we really do want to make room for these um, these sensitivities and. The, the, the full exp expression and experience of these traumas. Uh, I remember my uh, original meditation teacher, Shinzen Young, talking about that all life wants is for us to feel it, to experience it. He, he called it having a complete experience of what it is that wants to come up and be felt. So we really want to make room for it, you know. And we want to realize that as we do, we are literally creating new territory of consciousness, you know, and the um, healthy part of that is creating that consciousness. So hang on, I want to uh, play another piece that came in and hang on one sec. So we become aware of the karmas, these long sequences of cause and effect that we can piece together in our lives. So as this sensitive self emerges, this new world space, comes online, we begin to see these long sequences of karma, these long cascades of cause and effect that were there, but we just hadn't seen them before. And it's like Jennifer, the, she the, the, puts together the doctor experience with her strange year of depressive slide, you know. And so we not only see our piece of it, but we see the historical karmas, these big constellations of cause and effect around domination, aggression. And we don't just see it, we feel it. You know, the whole patriarchy, the racism, the whole system with its historical weight. And many of us feel that. Many of you felt that and wrote about it. And one of the ones that I thought was just most vivid and really um, uh, captures the intensity of how this can be for some people was a, a short essay that uh, a listener sent in. And I'm not sure, I think they got it off of something else, but it's about this Kavanaugh thing. And, um, and it's a woman writing her experiences of, of being literally re-traumatized by the hearing itself and the whole process itself. And I had my friend Namali read it for me because it needs to be a woman's voice and, um, and it's beautiful. So it's about two minutes. So here it is. I think I understand now why I'm so upset about this case. I tried to sleep last night and all I kept thinking is, why are they trying to ram him through despite the majority of the country 
and the majority of women saying no, and please stop, and wait. And in that very question, I found the answer. It was so simple and so alarming. They're literally playing out on the national stage and in real time what it feels like to be overpowered. They won't take no for an answer. They won't listen or slow down. They won't stop. The more we say no, the more angry they get. The more we ask them to stop, the more entitled they feel. This, I think, is what is affecting me and countless other women. We're being overpowered despite us being in the majority and asking rightfully that they stop or wait. They're saying no, and the more we beg, the more aggressive they are getting. Until, finally, they plan on ramming through his nomination while we are supposed to just take it. This is what is affecting me. This is, I think, what is affecting most women. This overpowering, entitled, and demeaning attack on our body politic. Us. Please stop. Them. No. Us. Wait. Them. No. Us. Stop. Them. No. Us. Crying. Them. Angry. Yelling. Ramming. This is why I am upset. Yeah, so that is, um, I think, pretty powerful. And we actually, you know, even if that seems foreign, it seems too much, uh, whatever, you know, we, we sort of bring to that kind of a transmission and testimony. We, as a practice, want to make as much room as we can for it. And feel into that because that is new territory that we want to, you know, live in. So, um, and then, you know, we want to make the room for that and don't not be clenched by it. And there's lots of ways to doing that. The, the whole therapeutic project of post-modernity is whether it's therapy or groups or, um, a spectrum of practices around meditative, you know, awareness where we just tease apart the actual components of the experience or we do big screaming and what, what, whatever. There's a whole bunch of ways that we could work with that so that we could make room for that and just ponder it. If that's not our your experience, if I didn't experience it that way, but... I'm sure glad to hear that because I have a taste of experiencing it that way. And that's to the good. So that's healthy to the degree that you can make room, claim new territories, expand your world space. That's healthy green. So here's unhealthy green. To the degree that you are insisting that other people share that world space is to the degree that you're experiencing unhealthy green which is a monoperspectival idea that 
everybody either is or should be experiencing the same thing that I am. And that's where a lot of people are in this, in the Me Too movement, actually. But there's a move forward that we can map out. And that is that we want to take that territory that feels all of that, and is sensitive to that in ourselves and in other people and in the system and the historical movement, all of the fucking karmic catastrophe of humanity. And we want to then be able to go back into society, you know, back to the bigger collective, not just the collective of people who feel the same way we do, but the bigger collective, which includes people who don't feel the same way we do. And they haven't got this explosive new revelation of sensitivity. And they actually like traditional male-female power dynamics, where the man is the protector and the woman is the nurturer and you know, that whole thing, it's deep. It's, you know, we had, as I said, 50,000 years of hunter-gatherers where the men's, men are the hunter and the women are the gatherer, the childbearing, and that's deep and it's juicy. And we, and people who experience that in a way that's healthy don't want to homogenize that. They, they look at a modern uh, sort of, sensibility around me male female relationships of this equality where both of them people put on a suit and go off to the office i don't want that that doesn't feel appealing and there is actually we could this is another podcast but there is a loss of juice that can happen as we move out of these traditional relationships uh, it's necessary. It's like growing up. I mean, we, we, it's just like we have to eventually not be eight anymore. We have to be nine, you know, but there's a loss and we can see it in our own development. You know, the magic of childhood, these, you know, b- believing in, 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 you know, being in a world space where, you know, there's good people, and there's bad people and God's in his heaven and all of that stuff, that there is something that is delicious about that. And as I said, when it works, it's great. And, um, and it's funny, I was just doing a talk with Dr. Keith, another shrink of the pundit. And we were talking about happiness was the topic, actually. And, um, you know, I don't think this actually got into our conversation, but in my research, I saw that conservatives report, this is an economist study, as conservatives report being happier. And I forget the numbers, but it was significant. So, you know, we want to feel into that. Uh, and, you know, but then there's, you know, we remember, wait a second, our, real, our, our, our world space, what we've seen. And what we see is that these people are perpetuating the thinking and behaviors, you know, the, the white patriarchy that it continues to do its thing. You know, and we saw it in the in the Kavanaugh hearings, and it continues to cause suffer, to keep reoffending, reinjuring, and it shouldn't be happening. And we just can't stand it. So, you know, this is the 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 cutting edge. This is the bleeding edge of development for a lot of people. And we, you know, the, 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 the integral perspective does deliver us <laughs> into a new promised land where we integrate the best of all of that in a way. 
so, you know, I, I don't want to go into all of the, the sexual politics of that. There's other podcasts and more to come. But in terms of the actual um, uh, moving into integral, so you're taking the best of this screen realization, this new sensitivity into an integral new world space that actually sees and respects and appreciates the worldviews that are in diametric opposition and at, that have been at war for centuries. And we can feel them even be at war within us as we sort of stumble around trying to figure out how we feel about all this stuff. But the sort of watchword of what's different was we move into integral and have this, you know, multi-perspectival world space is that we can choose. We want to get in the arena. We do want to fight uh, because we do have a bigger view that um, embraces more and is more humane, but we don't want to condemn people who don't have it. And that's a very significant difference. We want to fight, but not condemn. And, um, you know, that's a koan in a way, but it uh, is uh, important. It's funny, I was just talking to a friend who uh, had just been back home to visit his folks in Louisiana and they're conservatives and they watch Fox News constantly and he doesn't. And so he had to, and. They were sensitive, and his father asked him, you want me to turn on Wheel of Fortune or something else? And he was like, no, I actually want to watch this. So he did so. All right. First of all, let's pause. That's a big deal for a dyed-the-wool liberal to watch Fox News and to just, you know, receive what it is, this, this other perspective. Now, he... Uh, thinks they're wrong and disingenuous and, you know, whatever, but he at least did it. And that itself is a practice. And the further practice for those who watch Sean Hannity and think that he's just a phony and, and just throwing red meat and making a lot of money, there's truth to that. You know, it's everybody has their audience on the television, but to actually work with the koan that he actually is sincere and that all of these people, they actually believe and their basic sensibility is that th their perspective is right. And that itself is an integral practice and not always what I want to do, but I do. And it, it's helpful. And I, um, I actually, got another uh, email from a listener, Marcia, and she gets to this a bit. She says, how delighted I was to listen to your podcast perspectives rather than the liberal press I mostly listen to. I knew I was being fed a line from said liberal press, even when they may seem to more even-handed to my liberal ears. The integral lens is a relief. Thank you. It feels as though it is a place where I can land and be more at peace because it holds the truth of evolution. We are evolving. Not easy, not pretty, but inexorable and ineffable. Ah, and I like that. Um, so uh, let's see here. 
you know, the uh, when I think of some of the sort of markers or, you know, what's the nature of the integral move as we work with this is in a, in a way we're, we're becoming more cosmocentric. So we're seeing the whole catastrophe of humanity and the, you know, suffering and the samsara of it all. And there's a certain forgiveness that happens there. And to the degree that we become transpersonal and that our identity becomes bigger than just time and space and this particular expression of who we are, then we realize that in this somehow mysterious mix of time and space and absolute reality, we've all played the victim and the perpetrator and the, you know, just God bless us all. And God forgive us all. And there is a forgiveness that comes online as we sort of get bigger, you know, more cosmocentric, more transpersonal. And the other thing that comes online, and I actually don't think this is just an integral. I see this at every stage and it's so good. I love, it's the good side of humanity. You know, I love people. And um, they do this lovely thing when they have dealt with adequately, at least, their traumas and tragedies. And that is they dedicate some part of their life, sometimes their whole life, to seeing that it doesn't happen to other people. And you gotta love us for that. It's pretty, pretty common to see that. And again, at every stage. And I have a paragraph here that I, I got from uh, Jennifer's essay where she wrote, um, today I searched online and found the doctor. He died years ago, but the comments on his obituary go on forever. He was a great friend, a true humanitarian who never turned away a patient, a heroic political activist, founder of institutions, a great family man, on and on it goes. Someone wanted to build a statue to him. They thought they knew him, and I'm sure they did, just not the side I saw coming at me that day. So we hold the wonder of just the strangeness of life. And then this kicking in of, you know, what we must do. And here she writes, there must be other women he preyed on. Some have been harmed far more than I was, or may have been. But for the first time, I've realized that I had been hurt by someone I sought help from. And I deeply regret not telling. And here's where the kicker comes in. Because I might have saved other girls and women from him. It's not that I hate him. I don't. It's that this must be stopped. Men must not imagine that they can get away with it. And I think that's right. And that is a new realization that is happening, not just at the green level, but at the, the orange and amber level to the traditional and modern level, uh, where, you know, there's a horizontal evolution where people, maybe their hearts don't really leave that stage. They still like hearth and home and God and country. But they want their wives to be safe at work. They want their daughters to be treated with respect. And they also 
are concerned about their sons and that they be treated fairly too. And there's, you know, a growth at every stage that we're experiencing here. And that, you know, the, the, the way forward, it just another sort of integral principle is that evolution differentiates and then integrates. So whether it's atoms or molecules or cells or whatever, they change into different things and they have to change into sort of uh, uh, different things with a juice, you know, between them, like a polar, uh, a, a polarity. And then there's an integration. And that's what we're seeing here in the culture is a, you know, in a way, a, uh, a, a solidifying, a gripping of these worldviews. Uh, and there's a differentiation there that I think portends an integration. And um, so one of the things that we can do as integralists is try to light the way and take this heat and turn it into light. So um, more to come on all of that. It's unfolding at a breathtaking speed and we'll keep an eye on it. All right, so I want to uh, close this podcast with a couple other comments that people sent me that deal with other aspects of the Kavanaugh case. And um, I'm going to click into a piece that I recorded about that earlier today. I think I wore a different shirt. So if you're confused, that's uh, not a problem. And um, otherwise, we'll see you next time. Thanks, folks. At the end of the last episode, I said that I would do a thumbs down on Kavanaugh. And my argument was that he didn't show judicial temperament. And, you know, it's not like I don't expect judges to have personal and partisan feelings, but I do expect them to hide them. And he didn't. And that was a deal killer for me. I could just feel any, you know, respect for him as a fair justice flow away. So there's that. But I did say I could forgive him for dissembling is the word I like to use about his drinking when he was in high school. And I think, good God, you know, he's 17 years old or even in college, we grow from there. That's one of the things about evolution and development that we can count on. And um, and yet he did the, you know, I I liked beer. I still like beer. Do you like beer? You know, that kind of thing. And, you know, I think we all realize that we hope that he doesn't like beer now the way he liked beer then when he was a prodigious puker, which I thought that was kind of funny. And why didn't he just cop to it? It's not like it would mean that he was copping to blackout drinking. I was got very drunk many times in college and never blacked out. And sexual assault or, you know, anything that, um, you know, it doesn't mean that he would be a, a, a copying to any of that. And I think of George Bush, who George W., who said, when I was young and irresponsible, I was young and irresponsible. And, uh, you know, most of the nation forgave him for a whole lot of things that he did uh, that uh, went right up until I think he was 40 when he stopped drinking. But at any rate. Uh, I do think that considering this guy's a judge, I just think again of my my 
paragon of judges, Judge Judy, who would just make mincemeat of anybody who was spinning and posturing the way he was. So I guess I'd give him a thumbs down for that too. So you convinced me. All right. I also made the point that I didn't think that it mattered that Kavanaugh, uh, if it was Kavanaugh or somebody else, because I didn't think that Trump was going to nominate anybody that the liberals like me were going to like any better. And uh, Lynn Feldman, uh, an old friend of mine, sent me a voicemail where she made the point that, oh, yes, there is a reason for Kavanaugh. And she's a retired uh, uh, defense lawyer. And she's been thinking about these things for a long time. She was one of the founders of the Integral Law Center when we were doing it back in the Integral Institute days. And so I'm going to play what she sent because she explains it pretty well in about one minute. And so here is Lynn. I'd like to call attention to what really concerns Trump and why Kavanaugh must be put on the court now. No one else but Kavanaugh. The case of Gamble versus United States is a case that challenges the separate sovereign exception to the Fifth Amendment's double jeopardy clause. And it's an exception which allows multiple prosecutions stemming from a single offense. Um, And a lot of people are saying, well, even if Mueller gets shut down, there's always New York or there's New Jersey or there's California. However, the important ramifications for criminal defendants such as Donald Trump, such as Manafort and the rest of them, is that there is a loophole which they can decree says that the state and the federal government are not separate sovereigns, but instead uh, the Supreme Court, the uh, federal uh, court always trumps the state. All right, there's a lot there. She explained it well. You could check it out, Wikipedia or or Google, Gamble versus the United States. It's a pending case where it would determine whether or not a pardon for federal crimes from from President Trump would also prevent state prosecution. The assumption is it wouldn't. And there's a case where that could flip that. And Kavanaugh, some analysts say, would be the one to do that. So we're gonna have to keep an eye on that. Thank you, Lynn. Next is a email from Tim Bovee. And uh, I'm just gonna paraphrase it and and then direct you to an essay that he wrote that appears on Medium, but I thought it was really terrific. And what what he was, he he is pondering, what's the second tier response or or, where are we gonna go from here? in terms of the structure, the lower right quadrant, for those of you who know integral theory technically, uh, and that is, you know, the systems, you know, how are we gonna change the system? And he came up with a three-point plan for constitutional changes to the Supreme Court. And I, I know it's a long shot, but as Ken Wilber often points out, people thought about modernity for 300 years before anything happened. So we got to think these thoughts that cuts new grooves and his essays on medium, it's called neither King nor Pope nor Dalai Lama, how to fix the United States Supreme Court. And his points are basically this. One is that we should have term limits and he suggests six years. 
Fair enough. I think that's debatable, but I like term limits. But here's the one I love is that the Supreme Court justices would be chosen. And again, every six years, so it'd be happening a lot. They'd be chosen by lottery from the bench of federal judges. And maybe there's a minimum tenure to keep the newbies off. But that is, um, you know, that feels like fresh to me. And, you know, if you're a federal judge, you got to know the Constitution and you get in there and you make the decisions and move on. So there's that. Uh, And then the third is that we need just a diversity of thought. And he's not talking about the normal diversity of, of, of male, female and race and so forth, but of just the fact that of the nine Supreme Court justices, four were born in New York City area, and there's three in the entire South and and west of the Mississippi, and they're all Ivy Leaguers. So this would also seek to mitigate that. So I liked it again on Medium, Tim Bovee, B-O-V-E-E, neither King nor Pope nor Dalai Lama.